and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and usually I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, but this week it's just Angelina Stanford, because Tim's in Aruba. That's right, so you can stop listening now. Exactly. I'm not saying just <laughs> Angelina Stanford like... You know, that makes it lesser. It's not just Angelina Stanford. Like it's I have just, a disappointing announcement to it's make. It's simply that Tim is not here. But, to, yeah, so Tim's in Aruba. Wasn't able to make the connection, um, but he'll be on. He's going to be in Aruba for, like, seven weeks or something. That's not true, but a long time. I feel like I want to put that in air quotes. He wasn't able to make the call. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what we're calling it now? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... This, he probably just he just chose to be on the beach right now. Tim is getting a sunburn somewhere. Yeah, exactly. How have you ever been to Aruba? I've never been I there. Not, I have not. How okay? It sounds very exotic. How high on the list of your preferred destinations for any vacation would Aruba be? Like, where would that oh, be on your list? No, it would not crack the top 100. So you're going on a, you get to choose to go on a vacation. I'm not a, I'm not a beach girl. That is, my mind's not like, oh, I want to go to the beach. That's not my idea of a great time. Okay, so you can go to anywhere in the world for 12 days. I think that's how long Tim's there, for 12 days. And let's just say, like Tim, you're, it's just like a solo vacation. So you're going to go experience it. There's no other constraints. You get to do whatever you want. And at whatever pace you want, unless, of course, you fall in with gypsies or something. But what, where would you choose to go? Oh, the first thing that popped into my head was I would go to Italy. It's my favorite country, and I've been dying to go back there. When did you, when did you go there the first time? Oh, a long time ago. I think I was 19. Mm. Um, and I've made it back to Europe, but I have not made it back to, to Italy. So I have, That was just my absolute, it was so much fun. I have never been to Europe at all. Oh, a foodie like you? Oh my gosh, the food. The food in Italy was just unbelievable. Very high up on the list for me would be going to Modena in Italy because the they that's where like they make balsamic vinegar there and they make the homemade pasta there uh. and one of the most famous restaurants in the world is in Modena. Um in fact there's a uh documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you've ever heard of I think it's called The Chef's Table. One of the episodes on that they did it with this chef in Modena on how he like saved Parmesan, the Parmesan industry after an earthquake and stuff like that. So I, wow. that, that would definitely be a place I'd one of the places I want to go, but I've never been to Italy. I mean, to Europe at all. So I'd probably, Gosh. I've been to Canada and I've been to, per, <laughs> and I've been to Peru. I'm, I have not been, I lived all, I've lived all over America. I've been all over America. But I've ne- except I've never been to Los Angeles. That's another place I'd like to go. I don't know why. It's just a city I think I'd like to go see once. Um, but I well, I don't I don't speak Italian, but I I did and see like this is going to be like a little homeschool mom lesson for everybody. I was able to get pie pretty decently because I knew Latin and French, and I was just like speaking my own blend of those two things, and I got by. Yeah, well, I studied Italian in college for like three semesters, um, oh. and I don't remember any of it. But you know. What else is college language courses for? <laughs> but to forget things. Also to get credits. <laughs> I remember one Italian word, yushita. That was the exit to get off the subway. Oh, interesting. So, you know, I never learned those important I, n- things. I never learned that word. All my courses were all... Matt Bianco's going to be so mad because he hates when we just banter. When we just talk about nonsense, he's like, get to the book. Oh, well, Matt Bianco, too bad. Other people like this book. Yeah, I mean, he does. I think he just stopped listening to the show altogether anyway, so... <laughs> The guy who he's one office down for me. We should and over lunch the other day. He's like, "Yeah, I don't listen. You guys talk too much." <sighs> anyway, he's just mad at me because I would have been posting about Achilles on Facebook. He's sulking. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we are here to talk about Gilead, um, Marilyn Robinson's book. This is episode two of that conversation. We're going to talk about roughly pages thirty-seven through pages uh, page thirty-seven through page sixty-eight. And there's plenty of things to talk about there. Um, we probably won't go as long as normal just because Tim's not here to defend himself when we make fun of him. Or to tell or to, or, or or to tell stories. stories. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait for the stories when he gets back to Aruba. Like, I feel like it's going to be like, I befriended this little couple. Yeah, exactly. Turned out they were con artists. Robbed me blind. When you say little couple, do you mean they're like 5 foot, 110 pounds? No, I'm just like, picture like some <laughs> sweet, like Midwestern elderly couple. Okay, and he like okay, befriends yeah. them as like surrogate adoptive grandparents and then they just bleed him dry for 12 days. Or or he comes home with some strange 
um and like he gets an inheritance of like crazy jewels and and uh and old books okay so one of us has a much more optimistic <laughs> imagination <laughs> The other I'm one. just trying to figure out what's most realistic for Tim. I'm sorry, Tim. Sorry, this wasn't like a prophecy. <laughs> yeah, well, now what? I feel really bad if he later he, we get this SOS message. You know, I'm in a jail in Aruba. <laughs> and if my story turns out to be true, I'm going to the nearest gas station and buying a lottery ticket. Yes. Um, anyway so we're as i've said we're here to talk about gilead uh first i need to say a quick word from our sponsors we can't like ask tim to talk about his his classes for this episode but uh if you have a ninth i'll pretend i'll pretend to be 10 okay if you have a ninth or a 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar style great books course while earning two high school credits then uh tim's courses over at scully academy might be ideal for you they're live online he has um what do you remember what his which courses they are again yeah, the Great Books 1 and Great Books 2. So okay. the Ancients and, I guess, Medieval Renaissance. We'll have to go back and listen to the old episodes to find out what the exact ones are. Or you can head I over... I it's the first two. He said the first two. Okay, yeah. So you can head over to scolaacademy.com to learn more about that, to you know learn more about the days and the times and the cost and all that kind of thing. And, of course, they have lots of other courses. So if you're looking for online options um, in math or science or anything like that, you can also find out about that at scolaacademy.com. Uh, thanks to them for sponsoring. And of course, thanks also to our friends over at New College Franklin. Uh, New College Franklin respects the sacrifices you make as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. And they want to help you sustain this during your students' college years. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College continues to build on the foundation that you have laid. So take the next step in your education or in your student's education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. You can go for a preview weekend or even just schedule a visit at your own convenience uh, to learn more about how to do that or just about you know the college in general, the leadership, the, the curriculum, the campus, any of that kind of stuff. You can head over to New College Franklin. Org. Yeah, and I was just talking to uh, Greg Wilbur this morning. We were putting some dates out there for when uh, he's going to get me out there to, to do some talks and over at the campus. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, it's a Franklin, Tennessee, is an it's underrated so place. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, the cost of living is not great right now <laughs> because it's growing no. so fast, but it's beautiful. My brother-in-law um, and his wife and my nephew just moved there. Um, and they built a house out there and it, we went and visited and it's rolling countryside and you, like you've got the amenities of the big city nearby, but you've got a nice small town square with really good restaurants for a city of its size and um, mar- a market and just beautiful countryside. So um, it's a it's a cool place. It's definitely the kind of place that I would want to open a college, you know, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so let's talk. Let's talk about Gilead. Um, I was I was struck, but we have lots of different things we can talk about, but I was, I was struck by something while reading and it is that we have read several stories that involve preachers or preacherly types, Parsons or whatever. Um, there's one in Pride and Prejudice. There's in Jaber Crow. Um, you, you even have them in Brideshead. We've, you know, almost every book we've read, I don't think that the Sayers mystery novel had one, but almost every story we've read has some kind of a preacher. And of course that's just a literary trope in general. There's just lots of preachers throughout literature. And I was wondering in what ways you think, you know, across all of your reading that Ames in Gilead is similar and different from some of these other archetypal preacher characters and stories. Oh, wow. And I didn't, I, so clearly I didn't ask Angelina to think about this question ahead of time. <laughs> Yeah, like he thought about it for a week, and now I'm like, uh, well, um, well, the first thing that I think of is is the connection to Jaber Crow. That you know, he seems to be very relational, very observant about the community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Re- intensely self-reflective. Like I'm, I'm really enjoying all of his observations about what it means to be human, and that he feels like as a as a pastor, he has a window into other people's humanity that you know is rare. I think he says something like that's a benefit of the ministry that people don't talk about, having this insight into people's inner lives when they come to confess or just to, you know, talk about a burden or whatever. Uh, and so that kind of made that made me feel that feels like Jaber Crow because we had talked about how in the barbershop almost had that same 
um, yeah. status in the city where people come in and they want to talk and tell their stories. And uh, so he seems like that same kind of figure, of course, being a lifelong bachelor and, and being observant that way. Uh, so so he feels like Jaber Crow. He certainly doesn't feel like Mr. Collins. Well, I was thinking about that. Although I, there's that interesting idea, too, of the single single preacher who needs a right, wife. Right, because I was thinking about that, how he, like his personality, his character, all these things, um, the way he interacts with the community feels very different from Collins. But as you say, it, like Collins, this is a minister who the idea of needs a wife and, and Ames talks in the book about how people expected him to, to, to get married. They, they wanted their minister to be married and how everybody's niece and cousin and whatever they, they, everybody was introduced to him. And for some reason, you know, he calls it a mercy, I think, but for some reason, nothing, he never connected with anyone in that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that he chooses not to be Mr. Collins. He's not going to make this pragmatic choice because of his position and expectations. Remember Mr. Collins makes such a big deal about, um, Lady Catherine DeBurr's expectations. Oh, mm -hmm. She told me it was time to get a wife, and because of my position, I need a wife. And so he goes and gets a wife. Yeah, so why do you think Ames resisted those expectations? I mean, what do we know about him so far that, that would kind of reveal why he did that? I mean, he's obviously a free thinker, um, and maybe it's that he didn't have a rich benefactor. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's a good question. He does seem to have an interesting loyalty to his first wife and child, um, which, yeah. I mean, I'm not someone who has experienced that kind of death, so that might not be unusual at all yeah. um, to feel that and to, and to feel the difficulty of moving on after that. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me at the end of his life that he's talking about being reunited with them, uh, but it doesn't seem like... He, he feels it doesn't seem like he realizes the need until the present wife walks in and then he doesn't even really know what's happening to him you mean the need to get like he doesn't he personally doesn't feel the need to get married that everyone else thinks he should feel right okay, right like yeah. so he talks about how he has this deep loneliness all these years right but he doesn't seem to make the leap in his mind that the the remedy for that loneliness would be to get married like he's not actively. There's something very passive about his marriage too, right? Like he doesn't. Who did we just she, talk about? She suggests being passive. Yeah, Brideshead, right? Yeah. Um. So same kind of thing. She just says well, you should marry Celia, me. Celia. Yeah. Yeah. He's like okay, and so then. That's interesting. That's a great point. That's a great point. So he's he's not active. He doesn't actively pursue this wife either. She she just kind of she shows up almost like a miracle and just and, and he doesn't know what's happening and she says I'm your wife and he says okay. And the, yeah, there's a mystery about it, and he seems very even as he's writing, you know, enough years later that this he has a young boy that's say I don't old five or six or seven or however old the child is. Um, all these years later, he still senses the mystery of it. Like oh, he yeah. feels the um, the awesomeness of it, like in the sense that he's in awe. Yes, that it ever happened to him. That he was right. kind of, It was almost like you get swept away by it. Like she kind of swept him up and took him somewhere that he never would have planned to go himself. Like there was no, it, like there was almost no agency on his behalf there. No, not at all. And then he says something else. I wish I could find the exact line about his friend Bowden. Um, the way that it, it pained him to go to Bowden's house because yeah. of the liveliness of the family. Yeah, all the, and that, all the children, yeah. Right, and but that he would he would think to himself, but I do have a wife and child. And it, and, and he says basically that he feels like people don't remember that. Mm -hmm. Right, that he's not a bachelor. He's a he's a widower. Mm. Yeah, that yeah, and the man, that is a that is a great distinction as as we think about this character. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I haven't experienced that, so I don't know, you know, this is just speculation, obviously. Somebody else who's experienced this could, I mean, it seems to me just from what I've read that people tend to fall into two different camps when they are in that kind of situation, right? On the one hand, you end up with like Sheldon Van Oaken in a severe mercy, right? He's never going to marry again. Right. Davy was the one and there's no, that's it. That, and so you, I can see him saying to someone, no, I have a wife. No, she's dead, but I have a wife. You know that, yeah. that role is filled, right? Um, and and then people go the other way and and get remarried very quickly, and and because the marriage was good, from what I understand, if you had a, a very happy marriage, you actually are much more likely to to marry quickly. So, mm. uh, 
not that Sheldon Van Oaken wasn't happily married, but they, they sit, they tend to fall into almost like these extremes, just from my observation, right? Either like never, they're, they're true to the memory till the day they die kind of thing, mm-hmm. or, or they quickly remarry. And, and so, um, it looks like John Ames falls into the Sheldon Van Oaken category, except that at the end, of course, he, but he doesn't go looking for her, right. which I he, think is interesting. He certainly doesn't fall into the sort of traditional patterns of of, of courtship or the, the things that you would expect of a bachelor and that the community expected of him. Like he didn't, he didn't, it wasn't like he really seemed, it didn't seem that he was rejecting it though. Like he wasn't saying this is not for me altogether. It was just, it didn't seem like it happened. Right. Like, right. Uh, does that make sense? No, it makes that. I, I do think that's exactly right. And so she's like this gift and he accepts the gift. Mm, yeah. But he doesn't go looking to fill the role. Like she is the way he describes. Her, I mean, this is not a preacher's wife, right? She yeah, barely right, knows anything. Yeah. She's not going to be teaching Sunday school and leading the women's ministry. Right. She just. Right. Like he makes the point that she's showing him that she's going to instruct this child in the faith. And she's doing that out of love for him. But that's not who she naturally sort of is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it just you just you just think if he was going to set about having a preacher's wife, this is probably not the woman he would have chosen. Right. Way yeah. younger and not really into religious things, although it doesn't appear to be against him. I mean, she keeps coming back to church. I'm not right. suggesting she's not a Christian, but. Right. So um, I was I, I was thinking about how the idea of her working on the memory work with the son, um, how it must have been so instructive for her as well. You know how like homeschool moms will say, I didn't know anything about Latin or whatever, but I taught my children it and I was committed to that. And I learned along with them. Like Mm -hmm. it's instructive to them. I mean, any teacher feels that right. Even if, even if you're an expert in, in in your field, um, if you're doing it right, then you're still learning as you're teaching. Absolutely. Um, so that, I, I was thinking about that. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I always say the best way to learn something is to teach it, which is um, a conundrum, right? But it's <laughs> true. Well, that yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I remember as a, I, I just I remember the way I read as a student versus the way I read as a teacher. Like, there's nothing like the pressure of all these kids looking at you, and you're the one that has to say something to really make you think about <laughs> what you're reading. Yeah. Do you think that? Um, that he would have, you mentioned that he accepted the gift and I love that you put it that way. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, the gift of, of, of a wife, basically of, of, of her coming into his life. Do you, so if he's 76 when he's writing this and the child, I'm going to say the child's seven, say, I thought the child was seven. That's the number. Okay. Okay. They must've said that. Somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So that was in my head. So seven. So that would be, I thought si- he was 80. I thought he was 76. Well, let's just say for the sake of conversation, he's 76. Okay. Um, and that would make him 69 when the child was born. Let's, so let's say, I don't know, we haven't, it hasn't been revealed yet in the story, the number of years and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if it matters. Sure. But let's say she comes into his life in his early to mid 60s. Let's just put it, put it that way. And so at that point in his life, he swept up in this and he, he accepts the gift. Do you think had this happened when he was 40, he would have been able to accept the gift. I feel like I don't know enough about him at 40 to, to say. Yeah, that's fair. The reason I, I asked, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to, I'm just thinking about some of the things he said, like he says in this section, I never thought I'd be a man with a young wife and child. Yeah. Yeah. So, so earlier he would have, Maybe, I mean, there's a lot of maybes, a lot of if, ands, and buts you could throw into any story. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know if it's her or if it's the timing, if it's where he was in life. It's a combination of all those things. Yeah, if it's something, if it's a God thing, as they say. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it was so interesting to me, and this might be taking it off the track, but one of the most poignant things in this section of something like I, a legit, like he says that, when he's listening to people and they would come to talk to him about family life, that mm-hmm. he, how did he put it? I felt like a part of life was closed off to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so then he gets this new experience uh, by having the wife and child. But then he says, but I will never, I will never see a wife grow old. Yeah. And that 
that oh man, I could think about that for a long time. First of all, it just flies in the face of our culture, right? Where mm-hmm. everybody's desperately trying to stay young, and he's talking about that it's a legitimate loss of something good and real mm-hmm. that he is not going to be able to watch his wife grow old. Yeah. But he only ever had a young wife. Now, I contrast that to the culture where so many men at his age are on their third or fourth young wife, right? They keep training them in for a younger model. Like, that's the ideal. Yeah. And he's mourning that he's never going to have an old wife. Yeah. I just thought that was really interesting and never yeah. thought about it like that before. It's one, you know, one of the things we talked about last week is we discussed whether it's a sad book or a melancholy book or whatever. Um, you texted me earlier and you said, I don't think it's as sad as I was originally thinking when I first started reading it. But I, I was, that's the sort of thing that I think is so rich about this character and the way he looks at the world. Um, what you're just describing is because there is obviously a sadness in growing old. There, there is a deep sadness in watching someone you love die, um, suffer the things that come with getting old. Right. Um, but he's, but there's also in that, you know, a grace, um, and, a, and a, there's a joy in, in that. And so that these, you know, he, he, for him, it doesn't seem like these things are ever polar opposites of each other. Right. Right. Um, my mom was listening to the show. Um, he, she and my dad are traveling. So she texted me yesterday that she had listened to it while they were driving and she said, um, she said something like, um, it seems like he has a thankful spirit that is healthy. Um, like that he, he recognizes the things that he's suffered, but he has the ability to be thankful for the joys that he has experienced. Um, whereas if he was like overly melancholy about it, it would almost imply sort of a, I don't know if it would imply like a mental ill health, but there's something very healthy about how he views both the suffering. And she said, you know, one of the things, well, she said when you, she said, when you get old, you see beauty everywhere in places that you're too busy to see when you're young. Um, now my mom's not that old, so, you know, I guess when you're older, you see beauty in places. That, and I suspect part of gaining experience in life is just that. It's not just that you know more stuff. It's about you know how to look at the world in a different way. You, yes. Your eyes are opened or they're changed or they grow or something like that. I don't know what metaphor is exactly appropriate. No, you're exactly right. And so part of the problem I'm having right at this second is is in, in getting ready for school, I'm reading so many different things for so many different yeah. classes that yeah. I'm writing. I literally, I'm, I keep thinking, oh, yeah, I just read this. And I honestly don't remember where I read it. I've also been talking to your mom, so it's likely that she may have said it or I read <laughs> it somewhere. Or I don't. If you're going to ask me where I read this, I'm going to tell you I don't know. But I feel like I just read something that said as you get older – life feels sweeter and, and the, the memories of things feel sweeter. Hmm. And I feel like that's happening in this book, but not sentimentality, obviously. It reminds me like you had said, Wendell Berry says, you know, anger is a young man's game, right? Like as you mm-hmm. get older, you just, you learn what battles to fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen that in my own life. I'm not nearly as righteously angry and wanting to <laughs> kill all the bad guys single-handedly. Like that, that's a young man's game, but. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, 30 i'm not that i'm not very old i haven't experienced that much but i've in I, if i look at myself at 20 or 25 and then now i definitely feel that i feel that i feel that you know in getting more experienced in in my marriage or as a parent or whatever <laughs> you know it's like every factor every part of your life seems to change in that way as you get older it does and i and i think and now this actually would be very relevant to the to the story as well i something changes when you have a family mm. Because, you know, all of this young man righteous angst where you would want to go out and fight battles and change the world. I mean, that's not that's not an unhealthy desire, right, to, to want to be part of a cause that's worthy. But mm-hmm. I guess when you when you start to have a family, you realize that that can look different than you thought. Right. It doesn't really mean you know, it doesn't have to mean picking out picking up a gun. Right. It can mean raising children and planting a garden and. And also, right. Well, that's that's the word right there. I think you also become more focused on the local, so to speak, like the things that are most near to you, um, because your priorities have to change. You can't be always thinking about, you know, what's beyond what's what's out there. Like you have to be focused on the people who you're responsible for 
and who you are responsible to. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the really sort of sad things about being so globally connected with the with it's not just the internet. I mean, with the television, I grew up in a globally connected world with mm-hmm. a TV, you know, but part of the problem with having international news coverage all the time is you totally lose perspective on the needs in your own local community and in your own life. And like we say, the people that I care for and care about and who depend on me, because everything feels like the bad stuff is happening far away. And if I really want to make a difference or change the world or do something good that I have to go far away, it's just like Christian kids growing up thinking they have to be a missionary if they want to serve God, right? We always have this big far away idea. Um, but, but Which, I, I, that's it, what I love about all these books we're reading. They, 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 they turn us, our attention to to what God has put right in front of us. You know, yeah. I used to think about this in high school. Everybody would be going on like a mission trip to Jamaica, and I'm like, but there there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in our own town. Like, yeah, we lived in a really poor southern town with a lot of needs, and but you know, it wasn't Jamaica. Right, <laughs> it wasn't, right. It wasn't beaches. It wasn't an exciting spring break to go. You know paint some old people's houses in our own town. But this, and this conversation while off track a little bit does seem fitting. It seems fitting with the themes and of the way aim sees the world because he sees the beauty in small things that are in front of him in, yes. in like, and he talks in particular about how there's nothing more transcendent. I don't, I can't remember the exact word. I we could look it up, but the, nothing more transcendent, more important than an, than the human face. Oh, that was a great section. <clears throat> and my, one of the things my mom... He talks about the incarnation. That right, he thinks that's yes. what it is. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things my mom said to me, she texted me. She, so she says, when you, see, when, you, when you get old, you see beauty everywhere in places you're too busy to see when you're young, which I think is a great sentence. And then she points out, you know, Ames is talking about laughter and water. And he says things like, he's talking about Tobias and his son and how they... We're splashing about in the water like maniacs, as you are right to do when you see something as miraculous as water. That there is that a the idea the idea that the world, the things all around us, that we the the simple, local, mm-hmm. everyday, basic quote basic things that are in part of human experience are miraculous. They're miracles, and yes. it's so easy to not to not see them. So the miracles come in grand grand stories grand crazy things like what happened to his grandfather the the vision one of the things that children do for us though is they help us to have these eyes of wonder to see everything he says that he says that doesn't he doesn't he say something like um people say ah shoot where is it i did i actually just opened to the place about the human face but he says he says something about how um uh, I can't. I can't find it. But oh, I mean, just what here you were it is. Talking about, here it is. Boy. Okay, go ahead. I feel on page fifty-seven. I feel sometimes as if I were a child. This is my favorite paragraph in the whole, this whole section, by the way. I feel sometimes as if I were a child who opens its eyes on the world once and sees amazing things it will never know any names for and then has to close its eyes again. I know this is all mere apparition compared to what awaits us, but it is only lovelier for that. There's a human beauty in it, and I can't believe that when we have all been changed and put on in- incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence, the great, bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that is past here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely, and I think piety forbids me to try. Oh, yeah, I marked that whole section, too. That was great. And it's connected to what we were just saying about the incarnation, right? So this world matters. This world's not an illusion. Yeah, right. It's not. It's not the greatest reality. We have a fulfillment coming, but he's, but he's right that I, uh, we we want to draw these hard lines, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. there's heaven and there's earth, and somehow because earth is not, you know, our, this is not our eternal condition, what we're experiencing right now. That somehow it's not, it's not valuable. But he's he's saying it's all valuable. Um, the hmm. shade and the reality, which I love that 
because I'm all about finding the shades and the shadows and the foreshadowings in the pagan world. Uh, that's all foreshadowing Christ. And and I don't think because Christ came that all of a sudden you, those myths don't have any value anymore. In fact, I think they have more value. So I think I understand what he's saying. The, the shadow to me now has more value now that I have seen the fulfillment. Hmm. Hmm. I love that, that he, in eternity, this world will be Troy. Oh, right. This will be the epics that are, that are sung. I love that. I love that he's infusing this world and this life with meaning without making it an idol. Hmm. Yeah. Right. He's got all this perspective right now. Yeah. That's a great point. It never comes to the point. He's not worshiping it. He, he's, he's admiring it and he's mystified by it in the, in the best way because he, he says i've been thinking about existence lately in fact i've mm -hmm. been so full of admiration for existence that i've hardly been able to enjoy it properly i love that i feel that sometimes because oh, yeah. he, he's constantly talking about things like a baby's brow on the palm of your hand right or mm -hmm. when the baby looks into your eyes or the way water looks or the, he talks a lot about light how light is such a wonderful thing and at certain or, or the, the the acorns was it the acorns falling from the tree and he says i've lived in this place for decades and still the wind blowing all these acorns from the tree can mesmerize me do you remember that yes and he also talks about his own body as a seed and i couldn't remember is that something that's said in this book or is that something that i read somewhere else I'm reading so much right now. It's crazy. So it, it may have been in this book, but I, I feel like I ran across that idea very recently. Um, it wasn't Lewis, but it was something like that that I was reading. I'm just reading too many books at the same time right now. I cannot keep them straight. But I was reading somewhere, and, and I was really struck by the idea of our bodies as the seed from which our new resurrected bodies will, will grow. So it was, it went into that whole death and rebirth, which obviously we think about death and rebirth because we're going to die. But, uh, I had mm -hmm. never thought of our body as a seed and then it showed up in this book. So if somebody's going to put on Facebook, then, you know, yes, you read it 20 pages earlier in the same book and that could very well be because <laughs> I'm really, really reading too much stuff at the same time. And this, of course, this book is very, uh, it just kind of wanders. So it's easy it to, to get it's it confused hard. with. Yes, it is. And and I hope we get a chance at some point to talk about the narrative structure. But let's keep going with, with what you're talking about. This is good stuff. Well, I mean, he says, uh, you know, towards the end of this, this section, he says, Each morning I'm like Adam waking up in Eden, amazed at the cleverness of my hands and at the brilliance pouring into my mind through my eyes. People talk about how wonderful the world seems to be through children. Uh, it seems to children, and that's true enough. But children think they will grow into it and understand it. And I know very well that I will not and would not if I had a dozen lives. That's clear to me each day. So it's constant. like there's this idea of you, you don't have to know something clearly to find it beautiful or amazing. Um, part of something being beautiful or amazing is that you can't fully understand it. That's what part of what made makes looking at the world is beautiful is you can't understand the wonder of it all the time. And it's the same part of what makes his the relationship with his wife or having a son beautiful is he can't understand it. It's, you know, that's kind of the nature of a miracle in some ways, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, this is just so interesting. I, I, so my, my dad turned 70 this year. And so I guess that's just got me thinking a lot about what it must be like to be at a point in your life. I mean, obviously none of us know when we're going to die, but right, at right. some point you get so old that, you know, even if I don't know the day, I, I know it's coming, <laughs> right? Statistically, I've lived more days than I have left, right? right. You, get to this, you get to this point. So I've right. been thinking a lot about what that must be like. What must you think? And, and, and does it automatically mean despair that every morning that you get up, you're like, okay, I'm surprised I'm still alive because I'm 95 years old and I really don't know how much longer I can keep going, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I love the idea that we're seeing in this book that there's this weird mystery that the closer you get to death, the more alive you feel. Like, hmm. like he seems... Well, I mean, wisdom is what we're supposed to get with our crown of gray hair, right? We don't live in a culture where that's necessarily true these days. But, but the idea that you could, hmm. as, you, as you near the end of your life, you have wisdom and a new perspective. And, and honestly, he seems to have sources of joy that would not be available to a younger person, right? 
because because when yeah. you're really young you just don't see that plus when you're really young um life moves so fast when you have little kids and you're just on the go all the time right and so a friend of mine said to me um she's a little older and and said because uh, i was just talking about how just life is just like at a, at a breakneck speed and and so i'm imagining it's going to be like that until like you know i'm 85 and then boom i dropped dead right and i've just <laughs> been going at the same pace that i am now forever and she said no the, she said the irony is in your 50s everything just slows down and so mm-hmm. you you have this sense now when you actually have less time that you have more time which is an interesting mystery. So I almost feel that way about this book too, right? He's so slow and like, okay. So whenever I read something that's supposed to be like a deathbed letter, I'm always thinking, what if you die before it's over? You're really taking a long time to tell this. Like, you know, <laughs> this is where I am in my mind. So yeah. he doesn't seem hurried. He's not panicked. It's not like I better write all this before I drop dead. But, but at the same yeah. time, yeah. there is the impending doom, which I don't, I, that okay when someone I say that that doesn't mean I don't see the joy in the book right mm-hmm. and those things are not it's not one or the other but right well that's kind of what the book's about though right it's right. not one it's, or the other yeah it's like a heartbreaking moment when his wife says in that gentle heartbreaking voice right why you have to be so old yeah yeah I mean, she's saying you're gonna die and you're gonna leave me and that's a real pain and a real sorrow even while he's in the midst of all this joy Right. And so there was a discussion on the Facebook page about whether or not it was melancholy or joyful. I mean, it's not either or to me. Melancholy doesn't mean lack of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an older term. Right. Like we, we think of you. I mean, we're just modern Americans. You either have to be you're sad or you're happy. Right. <laughs> so if you're not one of those, that's a problem. If you're not happy, you must be sad. Or if you're not pretending to be happy, you must be you must be sad. I, I, th- I think that's one of the I mean, I am not, in no way trained to make this comment. <laughs> so I make, Let's I, stop I, I it, yeah, why would I, I'm hosting a podcast right now. I can say whatever I want. Um, but it does seem like in some ways in, in the experiencing levels of depression in my own life or being around close friends or family members who have experienced levels varying, varying degrees or levels of depression. It seems like one of the things that feeds depression in a way is the is the sense that you're supposed to feel one or the other mm-hmm. like that when you're feeling depressed and it's the kind of depression that weighs on you that you can't shake i'm not you know it's that you you, you feel like you're supposed to be feeling something else and it almost makes it worse oh it does you're depressed that you're depressed right and it's, it's sometimes coming to grips with the idea that it's like it's not one or the other it doesn't have to be there doesn't have to be this like divide between our joy and our happiness or contentment and our, I mean, our joy and our um, depression or sadness and our contentment and our sadness, whatever it is. Um, All right. I mean, look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, similar thing, a guy who knows his life is coming to an end. I would not say that Jesus ever lacked joy, not in any mm. kind of eternal sense, but he's not in the garden, like having a farewell party. <laughs> right. It's a hard thing to die. I, Cannot imagine he, anybody. He asks no matter, for it to be taken from him. Well, yeah. If it's God's yeah, will. Yeah, right? So, I mean, even though he knows exactly what's going to happen to him eternally and has no reason like to be afraid, it's still a hard and unnatural. Death is an unnatural thing. I think about that a lot, right? Mm-hmm. This, that's not the nature we were given. We the were church, not made to The die. church fathers write about that a lot. Ah. Yeah, so I mean, this is an—it's an unnatural, hard thing. It is worthy of our sorrow and mourning. This is this is not how it should have been, and certainly not how it should have been for Jesus. So you know, if we can look at him in the garden, having a long, dark night of the soul, you know, how much hope is there for the rest of us? Yeah, that's true. He and you know, he talks a lot about, um, in the book, he not Jesus. I mean. I guess Jesus does too. But John Ames talks about the idea of, he, he uses the word existence a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he talks about the idea of perishability and imperishability. And on page, yes. so on page 53, he talks about that. Um, and he, cause he's talk he's he, just before this, he's talking about how he never would have believed that he'd see a wife of his doting on a child of mine. So he, that's what he said. I'd never have believed I'd see a wife of mine doting on a child of mine. It still amazes me every time I think of it. He says, you may not remember me very well at all. And it may seem to you to be no great thing to have been 
the good child of an old man in a shabby little town you will no doubt leave behind. If only I had the words to tell you. Um, oh, I also marked that. You have been God's grace to me. Yeah. A miracle, something more than a miracle. If only I had the words to tell you. And it feels like almost like that's a thesis statement for the book in some ways that he's trying oh, yeah. to, you know, he's not here to try to get across all this wisdom. He sort of, he sort of is, he's sort of here to tell him the story of his life, but ultimately he's also here writing this because he's trying to show this kid, explain to this kid how much of a miracle he was to him. Um, and that almost lends the book more poignancy. It's not just this retelling of the guy's life. It's not just the story of this romance that changed his life. It's, it's also about the miracle that the boy is himself. The existence of the boy himself is miraculous and meaningful and that he should mm -hmm. feel that about himself. Like he should, he should, he wants him to know how meaningful his existence is. Yes, I love, I'm looking for the line, I find that. I love though that he says, I don't want when you're reading this to be, to be thinking of me waiting for you. Because I don't want your dear perishable self yes. to live long and to love this poor perishable world. Um, yeah, so he, he doesn't want the boy to be filled with, you know, like, I need to hurry up and die to go be with my dad. Like he, he, he wants him to fully enjoy this life. Right. So let's read that whole passage because that's on the opposite page, page 53, um, where at the top of the page it says, you see where it says you're just a nice looking boy, a bit slight. Mm -hmm. You want to read that? Read those three paragraphs? Sure. You're just a nice-looking boy, a bit slight, well-scrubbed and well-mannered. All that is fine, but it's your existence I love you for mainly. Existence seems to me now the most remarkable thing that could ever be imagined. I'm about to put on imperishability in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. The twinkling of an eye. That is the most wonderful expression. I've thought from time to time it was the best thing in life, that little incandescence you see in people when the charm of a thing strikes them or the humor of it. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. That's a fact. While you read this, I am imperishable, somehow more alive than I have ever been, in the strength of my youth with dear ones beside me. You read the dreams of an anxious, fuddled old man, and I live in a light better than any dream of mine. Not waiting for you, though, because I want your dear perishable self to live long and to love this poor perishable world, which I somehow cannot imagine not missing bitterly. Even while I do long to see what it will mean to have wife and child restored to me, I mean Louisa and Rebecca. I've wondered about that for many years. Well, this old seed is about to drop into the ground, then I'll know. You mentioned that seed line earlier, and now that now that I'm you're reading it again there, the idea of someone dying but becoming seed like the and seed because seed brings forth life. Yeah, right. That's a really interesting choice of metaphor there by her and by by mm -hmm. Marilyn Robinson, by John Ames. It certainly sort of, and I love that this section ends with that. Right. It ends with this really rich metaphor, which is completely, it, it completely fits with that idea of it not being one or the other, right? It's not, it's not the end of something. Yes, and even everything in this paragraph is it's not one or the other. Like, I can miss this world bitterly at the same time that I'm eager for the things that are going to come in the next world. Yeah. Which that is the healthy tension we're supposed to have in this life, right? Otherwise, I mean, I remember being as a kid, at a kid, because I'm a weird, I was a weird kid who thought about weird things, but it was like a genuine conundrum to me. The more that I listened to sermons about how great heaven was, the more I wondered why we shouldn't all just kill ourselves and go there. Like this was a legitimate philosophical conundrum for me. Yeah. I, re I remember. So I remember being, um, let's see, I lived in Wisconsin. I remember, so I was six, I think. And it was, there was a snow day, which is rare there because it's just all snow all the time. So there was so much snow and so much cold that we had a snow day and I was standing in my parents' room and I was looking down on the busy street out there, watching the cars go by at three miles an hour on the icy roads and, and my, my parents are doing things in their room. You know, their, my mom's doing laundry or something. And I just stand there and I remember turning to my dad and saying, when we're in heaven, will we know that we're there? Oh. And I've thought about that my entire life, that idea of how will, what will our consciousness be like? Um, 
people talk a lot about the idea of seeing family members in heaven or, you know, people ask, well, kids ask, well, I see, will my dog be in heaven or whatever? But the idea of like, how will we experience, will our experience heaven? And as a six-year-old, I couldn't wrap my mind around concepts of this concept. This, I mean, I still can't, I don't I have no idea, <laughs> but the idea of like soul, a soul and imp, this idea of imperishability and what will our, you know, casting off the body here. And it's all that stuff was just so, confusing and sort it's that like sort of scary and mesmerizing at the same time as a kid like mm-hmm. something you long for and also fear at the same time i don't know if that makes sense no i mean i think i think that's aslan you just described right <laughs> that's a great point yeah this is that's what you long for god but you're also a little bit afraid and there's so many stories in the bible of people having that exact response you know when an angel shows up it's very terrifying and sort, and I also, as a six-year-old, sort of didn't want to just sit around on clouds and sing songs all day either. So no, that was a huge relief to me to discover that was not actually <laughs> a Christian doctor. Because <laughs> I was like, I, not to like not to sound blasphemous, but that really sounds like a drag. I... <laughs> it's, you, you like the biggest fear as a seven-year-old was probably not going to heaven because I'm going to say that heaven sounds boring. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't even play the harp. I don't know that I want to I've play gotta, the harp. I have to cast these thoughts. Hell sounds worse, but heaven sounds boring. And if I say that heaven is boring out loud, then I'm definitely going to hell. Exactly. So. No, these are, these are real struggles <laughs> with children. See, now everyone listening to this is going to go sit down their child and explain to them, heaven is not you floating on a cloud <laughs> with the harp. Nor are we going to become angels. See, I had, I had so many things to like work out you just absorb like no one ever taught me you become an angel but I right. you just absorb it through the culture right you watch well, TV you abs- or shows. people don't understand like how do you explain it we explain it through metaphors and so we have to work through the idea the way these metaphors yeah, right. so populate in our brains say, oh they're an angel now and so then you, i start thinking oh, no i'm gonna be i'm not gonna be me i'm gonna be this angel and right we don't die and i'll become clarence from it's a wonderful life no sadly <laughs> he did like good books though so he did. He did. <clears throat> um, you wanted to at least you mentioned earlier the idea of you wanted to talk on the narrative style. So let's touch on that before we head out. You, you had some questions. Well, it just it, that's one of the things I kept thinking about as I was reading this. Right. Like when, when authors make decisions to tell a story, it's, it's usually because they're they're pushing a plot forward. Uh, and so there's a there's this sense in which it feels random. Of mm-hmm. course, it's not random. She's very intentional. Mm-hmm. And, and the further I read, I can see the way that she's doubling back on some of these same stories. So we're getting right. stories in, in, in bits and pieces. Um, I guess I was wondering if you knew anything about the process, because one of the things I and this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but we have to have somebody has to do a sidetrack Tim moment. So I'll do it. <laughs> this is what I was thinking about when I was reading it. I don't, are you familiar with um, the author Ernest Gaines? Have you ever read any of him? Um, I'm familiar, but not closely like i don't know him okay, well so so he wrote the autobiography of miss jane Pittman, which they made a movie out of um a while back which was very good and he wrote a gathering of old men and he's a he's a louisiana author and uh he was the writer in residence at the university i was at and i met him a few times and i'd read gathering of, of old men and the, the thing about a gathering of old men is that it told in a, in multiple first person narratives that each chapter is told in a different first-person voice from a different character, but the, but the plot is moving forward linear, linearly, okay? So the story was that he initially wrote the book, I think, in, in third-person omniscient. So he wrote, writes the whole novel, gets to the end, and says, okay, this doesn't work. So then he rewrites it in first person from one of the characters, gets to the end and says, this doesn't work. <laughs> rewrites the whole novel from another. So he ends up rewriting the whole novel, I don't even know how many times, but from every person's, every character's perspective, trying to find a key to unlock the story because nothing felt right. <laughs> so finally, he realizes it's not a story that can be told from one person. <laughs> and because he had all these all these different versions of the novel written, he was able to just pull out scenes and say, okay, this character needs to tell this scene. This character needs to tell this scene. And, and he was able to put it together. So hmm. it was, it was obvious. He wrestled with how to tell this story for a long time. And there's a lot of lessons from that. Actually, I tell that story whenever somebody's really discouraged when they finish writing something and then they think it's horrible and I have to start over. And I was like, sometimes that is the best thing that can happen is hmm. rewriting it. Hmm. Um, 
So I kept thinking about him wrestling with how do I tell this story as I was reading this because I'm thinking, how on earth did she decide how to tell this story? Hmm. Do you know? Have you read anything about how she put this together? Because it's very random and meandering, and it fit, and it follows the path of the way somebody thinks, the way he jumps from. You can see there's like a little, a little something in one thing that he says that you can see. Okay, I can see how that would trigger this other memory, and he would and he would jump to that. But obviously, it's not random. She is intentional. I presume she's moving a star a story forward because we're getting we're getting more of a sense of the main characters and how they all fit together. But mm-hmm. it's certainly non traditional. I mean, I don't even know if I want to call it stream of consciousness, although it's sort of that, but it's... It doesn't feel like stream of consciousness to me, but I don't know. That's sometimes stream, the, you know, what makes stream of consciousness and whatnot doesn't always seem like... There's not a formal definition for that, uh, that really. I mean, I guess there is, but I, you, it's sometimes hard to say what is and what isn't. Um, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like James Joyce. It doesn't feel like, you know, that really is stream. You know, it doesn't feel like that. Right. Yeah. Um, but but as you said, it does seem purposeful because there's callbacks. There's there's all these different. And the callbacks make sense, and my mind is able to put together a linear narrative from what is being said. Well, to, to answer your question, idea. I don't really know much. The only thing I know is that what I said last week about, that she um, said to President Obama in their discussion that was in the New York Times, um, where she said she was waiting for her son to pick her up, and she was at a hotel, and she started writing that first sentence, and the, that character, that voice kind of came to her. Um, and so I don't, I think in some ways it was something of an epiphany, <laughs> a literary epiphany, but I don't know, uh, pro- sort of like, sort of like, um, the young wife showing up in John Ames' life. <laughs> I just feel like this would be a very hard novel to write. I, I imagine that the revision process was intense, where right. you're putting these letters down, these ideas down, these, these stories and these thoughts and these emotions. And probably, I, I suspect, this is just a guess, in my own terrible writing and limited experience, writing terribly, <laughs> this sort of thing is the kind of thing that you'd set forth and then it would be much more stream of consciousness, much less connected, but then you, you, you have to f- pursue your purpose, right? In telling the story. So then as you go back in revision, you're trying to tighten it up and tie everything together and revision's always intense, but I suspect that the, the, the fact that it's not always the direction isn't necessarily clear all the time makes the you have to tighten it up and point towards a direction in the revision process so i imagine that was intense and took a while that'd be my guess i can almost imagine each of these little breaks like being on a different index card and then just like moving them around in different orders like that's how it feels to me like Hmm. maybe that's just the visual i use as i'm putting it together in my mind it'd be interesting to take different sections in the book or say in these 30 30 pages that we read and put them in different spots and then read them that way and see how it would affect it. Now I'm not going to do that because that sounds like an awful lot of work, but it would be, it would be a, it would be an interesting experiment. So if we have a listener out there who wants to do that and tell us if it feels different, if you offer by a all means, bug, somebody would totally do it. By all means have at it. <laughs> um, but you know what? Maybe I will pursue an interview with her and we'll see. I mean, I kind of doubt she'll do it, but you never know. Maybe we can, She's still alive. She's still at University of Iowa. So I'll I'll see what I can do. Maybe we can get her to come on. Do you think at the university they have the earlier drafts? Like sometimes they'll... Mm, I don't know. That's a good question. They, they, they will store all of that. I, I've... I have mixed feelings about it. I'm fascinated with the creative process. So I do, I do like to go back and look at, you know, early drafts and see how people did, but it also kind of destroys the magic a little well, bit like, too. It, it, but it's kind of like that um, Harper Lee book that we talked about where it right. really it was just a draft and then they took it out and published it as a prequel. Right. And then she'd never rewritten. Um, so you don't get the benefit Man, of, there's so much we didn't talk about. Like the fact that he wants to burn all his sermons. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about it. Go ahead. 
it just made me think of all the authors. I mean, Virgil wanted stuff burned. Um, Margaret Mitchell wanted all of her letters burned. Like, this is such a common theme of people wanting to burn things at the end of their lives. Um, I guess I really related to that because I'm someone who burns things I write. <laughs> Should I admit that? I have kept journals over various periods of my life, and I have destroyed all of them. And well, so when you we get famous, we're all going to regret <laughs> that a great deal. And all we're going to have to go on is Facebook messages and text <laughs> message threads and your social media life. And think about what that's going to say about you. But I, when he talked about how like it was embarrassing and painful to revisit his earlier interior life, I, I understood that. And it was just, I don't know, like yeah. the reason I've destroyed them is because I would get to this point where I would think, I'm not that person anymore. I've moved forward and I don't, I just did not want a record of that previous interior life. Yeah. So I, I can understand it. I totally understand why Margaret Mitchell wanted her letters burned. I'm really glad we didn't burn them. So I have totally mixed feelings. I'm glad the Aeneid was not burned. Yeah, that we didn't do what they asked. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I didn't ask anybody to do it. I just did it. <laughs> yeah, don't rely on other people. I mean, if you want something done in this life, you got to do it yourself. I'm not Virgil. You could have just burned the Aeneid yourself. Be a man. Man I mean, up. how hard could it have been? Although I imagine that it would have been very hard to, to burn. Also, he was still working on it. So if he'd lived long enough to finish it, maybe then he would have <laughs> Then he would have. Then it, he would have maybe not wanted it burned. Maybe it was if I die before I finish it, burn this thing. Oh, that's true. I'm sure there's a Virgil scholar out there, or just someone who knows this that can give us a definitive answer on that. I feel like maybe that's something we should know. But I feel like now that I've said on the air that I've burned all my journals, if I should die famous and anybody like pulls a Harper Lee and be like, here's Angelina's unpublished journals, y'all going to know that's a lie. Yeah, it's been it's been out there now. She stated it. It's on the record. Don't produce fake Angelina I mean, journals. I have not currently burned the one I'm writing now, but I imagine I will at some <laughs> point unless I die before I burn it. So there could possibly be one surviving journal, but there's not going to be like 20. You're gonna You're going to burn that thing tonight, aren't you? And let me tell you, it is not easy to figure out how to burn things like just in a house. <laughs> I didn't in, have a fireplace. That in an apartment? Yes, that took some real creativity. <laughs> so, you're... I know. This I love this. Really I love. Yeah, exactly. I love the idea of you like wandering around the house trying to figure out how to burn a bunch of journals. I did. Oh, and then disposing of all the ashes. But I did. I did it. I successfully burned them. <laughs> There's also something really cathartic about just setting on fire a, a bad episode of your life. People should try it. <laughs> <laughs> I like, this time I'm giving therapy. Instead of just getting the therapy, I'm giving it to you. <laughs> Write a bad episode and then burn it. Well, hey, would you, do you have any final thoughts on the actual chapter, the actual pages that you'd like to um, cover? Because my foot only... is really asleep right now. <laughs> Or I was going to have to come carry you out of the closet now. Yeah. Uh, but the only thing else that um, we didn't talk about was, was um, I, I'm fascinated that when he talks about Boaten the old man, he also mm. still sees Boaten the young man. Hmm. It's all the same to him. And the way hmm. it's like, oh, I wish you could have seen him. He was so strong and so fast. and He was a base stealer. Uh, yeah. And, and But now he's this wrinkled old man. But he's still the same man. And you mm. still see the young man um, and the older person mixed in together. So speaking of the ways TV messed you up, and, and I hope I'm not going to show what a total freak I am when I say this, and that people <laughs> listening are going to be like, that happened to me too. But when I was little, and you'd watch a movie, right? And so then there's the kid actor, and then the kid actor grows up, and he's a totally different actor, right? That had a profound effect on me to where I always felt like at some point in my life I was going to be a grown-up and I wasn't going to be me anymore. I was going to be a totally different person. Oh, I was counting on that. Okay, but that doesn't happen, right? Like, <laughs> right. I'm still little kid Angelina. I'm just grown up with, you know, grown-up Angelina's problems. But, <laughs> but, but I never stopped being me, and that was like a real revelation for me as I got older that I was never going to get to this point where I stopped being me. So I, I think it's a fascinating thing that he sees all of this man's life. And so my, you know, my oldest friend of 27 years um, lives in Austin and, and we visited uh, at, at the conference and I was having that same experience. And I even told him, I said, I see the now you 
and the you from 27 years all in your face at the same time. Like you're the man and you're the boy and it's all at the same time. And so I keep hmm. thinking about this as I read it, that, that that's his experience as well. He sees, I mean, I guess it's almost like an eternal perspective, right? Like you're almost out of time. Hmm. I wonder if that's how hmm. God sees us, that you just hmm. see all of it at the same time. I suppose that you'd have to have a certain level of like the you have to have a close relationship with someone to be able to 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 not think about them as they are at any given time, right? Right, true. true. I, I don't that, I don't mean that to take away from what you're saying. I'm just Right, right. Well, right. Sure. I mean, you have to actually have known them at different well, times. But... That's true, yeah. <laughs> Like, I and don't so, know. I mean, I, when I look so at you, I don't see 10-year-old Angelina. I just... Well, no, because you don't know 10-year-old Angelina, right? right. But, uh, I don't know old... if I was born when you were 10. Um, no, I don't think you were. <laughs> no, you definitely were not. You definitely were not. Um, so that would be really weird if you knew me. But, or maybe yeah, it would be so less he... weird. Actually, it might be less weird. He's one of the only people I've known for that long, so I don't have that experience with yeah. very many people. Um, but I guess parents have that experience somewhat with their children. You know, they'll make an expression or something, and mm. you know, you think, "Oh my goodness, it's two-year-old you. You're still, you yeah. know." My yeah. son is 20 years old. He has the exact same mannerism when he's nervous of playing with his hair that he has had since he was six months old. <laughs> <laughs> Should not have outed him on that, but. <laughs> well, everybody's got that kind of thing. Right. Right. But but it's still but but that's not exactly like mannerisms and stuff is not exactly what I'm talking about. Um, like I really can just see the the young the boy and the man at the same time, and I get the sense that that's what happens with John Ames and his friend. Like he doesn't look at him and just see the mangled man that his spine was like a knuckle. Isn't that how you described it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he doesn't just see that guy. But which also helps me to connect to the idea of a wife growing old. So you know, I. I've always imagined yeah, yeah, that's a what great it would connection. Be like, right? What it would be like to be like two 95-year-olds who are married? Like, you know, do they I've always wondered like do you just lean over in bed one day and be like, "Where did this old man come from?" Like, <laughs> or do they still But now I think the answer is you still see the young man. You still see the young girl you marry. It's all together. Hmm. And so it's not like you lose the love because they've gotten old. And, of course, obviously there's emotional closeness and things that happen over time that would actually make you love more. I'm not discounting that. Right, I'm just right, talking right, about yeah, yeah, yeah. the phenomenon of <clears throat> there's still probably a sense in which a 95-year-old guy looks at his 92-year-old bride and just thinks, there's my girl. That's still yeah. that's the girl I married. Well, and that connects to what he was, you know, the the, the Boughton comments about Boughton getting old and still seeing the young man and but how much he respects the old man, all that kind of stuff that connects yeah. to the comments about how he never, you know, did one of the tragedies is he didn't get, he is never going to get to see his wife grow old. Right. Right. That's all connected. This, this time perspective he's got going on. And then he's never going to, you know, he talks about how Bowton's got grandchildren who are married. His yes. oldest son has white hair. He's not going to see his son right. grow up. And it it does seem like, as much as there, as, as far as regrets in this book, the regrets that he has, it doesn't seem like he spends a lot of time regretting the decisions that he made. At least not yet to this point. But what he regrets is, as much as he's going to love, he he believes that he's going to love heaven. You know, the the imperishability that he's going to be putting on in the twinkling of an eye. His regret yeah. is that the, is that he's not going to see the perishability to experience. Yes. The living of life because perishability and life being lived are go hand in hand. And maybe that's why there's been some confusion about what exactly we mean when we talk about it being melancholy, because he, this is not a man at the end of his life repenting. And maybe that's been a little bit of a confusion where we've, I've talked about there's a sense of regret. He's not it's not, oh, I, I made a lot of bad choices in my life and I regret it. It's not yeah. that sense. He's not repenting, oh, I wish I had been a better father or a better husband. It's not that. It's not right. that story. It's just recognizing genuine loss. Yeah. I've lived a good life, but it's a genuine loss I will never see my grandchildren. It's a genuine loss I will never have an, a wife that I have watched grown old. I mean, I just love the way that in this kind of shadow of eternity, right, as he's approaching his own death, He's just affirming the value and the goodness of this life. Hmm. Yeah. But not in a depressed way. I mean, I said this last time. He's not raging against the dying of the light. He's not bitter. He's not angry. 
He's not repentant, but there is definitely a loss. He's like, like, and that's the kind of the, we said this already. That's kind of the tone of the whole book, right? The tension between what is going to be gained and that's true and good, but also what is lost is true and good. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which I guess, I mean, is that the challenge for every Christian to live right there in that tension? It's a tension every parent feels as their child gets older, right? You, they they mourn the loss of the cute little baby or the cute toddler or the cute seven-year-old, but then they also really like the new person too. It's, it's I guess that's all of life, right? Except on the days when you wish they were still two. Do you have those days? I do not <laughs> have those days. I hear people talk about that. I'm just, man, uh, I, mean, I can't I'm, I'm tell kidding. you how happy I am that all of my children are potty trained. Like, I'm just like, you yeah, know, that, another that's, day that's where great, I didn't have to change is, diaper. I, we, we do have a, a child in diapers, so that is a great point. <laughs> I, that is a great point. <laughs> it's my, that was my single least favorite thing of parenting was potty training. Like everything else I could pretty much handle that. <laughs> that I wished I had an old school nanny to just come and take care of that. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? All right. I will well, stop rambling on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess we should go ahead and, and, and finish it. Hey, you have a um, another literature webinar coming up that you're doing. You want to tell us about that before we go? Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll be talking about Hansel and Gretel on September 22nd um, through the Searcy Institute. And so this will be a – this will cover a different type of fairy tale. So this is not a – Prince overcomes obstacles and marries the princess happily ever after story. This is a this is a different kind of fairy tale archetype. So I will be covering lots of different things that are going on in fairy tale. So it'll be it'll be different than the Snow White one. I'll be um showing the way that you can see the gospel message in the in the other types of fairy tales that are not leading toward a wedding. Hmm. And we'll be going over some of my favorite archetypes like um, the lost in the forest archetype. So if, if anybody sees on the um, Cersei Facebook page or the website the image that Graham made for the uh, for the Hansel and Gretel class, I was really excited when he sent it to me because he didn't even know that that was going to be a big thing that I was going to talk about, the whole lost in the forest, but he really captured that well. So I'm excited about it. I, I think it's going to be um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. In fact, I'll tell this this funny story. I guess I hope it's funny. Someone might find it a potentially funny story, <laughs> an insight into what Angelina's life is like. So I was actually this week moving my son into college, uh, the dorm, and uh, Graham texted me the photo of the image, and I loved it. And as soon as I saw it, of course, my mind started racing with everything that I was going to say. So I was writing the fairy tale webinar in my head while I'm moving my son into the dorm. <laughs> And my 12-year-old daughter looks at me and she says, what's, what's that look? Why do, why do you have that look on your face? And I said, oh, I'm giving a fairy tale talk in my head. And she said, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's just that's life with Angelina. If I have a weird look, I'm probably giving a talk in my head, which yeah, you, happens all the time. <laughs> you're, you're just writing as you, as you stand there. Yeah, pretty much. So I'm, I'm already working on it. Awesome. So, again, the date is? September 26th. All right. And to learn more about that, people can just head over to our website or there's a link for it on Facebook. I think even on the uh, Close Reads group page. So if you're a part right, of that. And, uh, the way those webinars work is uh, if you if you can't be a live participant, um, your registration in the class you, it gives you uh, access to the recording. So. But if you're planning to watch the recording, please do sign up ahead of time. Yes. It's, you, right. can, you won't be able to sign up for it like after the fact. There's not going to be like a product in our store that you know, has that. So, right. So you need to register if you're interested in finding out about Hansel and Gretel. It's going to be great. Awesome. Well, uh, for Tim McIntosh, who is on for a Tim beach, Aruba. for Tim yeah. Aruba McIntosh, exactly. Who's on a beach somewhere with a colorful drink, I'm sure. Uh, and for Angelina Stanford and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on Close Reads. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.